Well, the text for my sermon this morning is Colossians 6, excuse me, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23. We're in a series on Colossians, and this is where we landed on this Easter Sunday, and yet it is a perfectly appropriate passage for an Easter Sunday. If you aren't already following along in a Bible, let me suggest that you do that. Get out a Bible or get on an app and turn, click, swipe, tap, do what you do to get to this passage. It's a book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It's about, about halfway through. And we're going to be in this passage a little while, so I just invite you to, to, to hang out here with me. Check what I say against what God's Word says, because God's Word is what ultimately has the authority. Let me read here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." What are we doing here? Wherever you are, what, what are you doing here, gathered on a screen? Certainly there are better things you could be doing on a Sunday morning than listening to a man speak ad nauseum in a nearly empty room that's missing furniture and echoes subtly but annoyingly. My guess is you probably fit into one of three camps. Some of you are attempting to maintain some semblance of normalcy under the weight of this pandemic. You're accustomed to being at church at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and so you're doing your best to keep that together. Cool. Others of you are here because it's Easter. 
You've always made a special effort to visit church on Easter, maybe because of your religious upbringing, maybe other reasons, but now it's Easter and you're making that special effort to be here in a sense. You might not have done this last week, and you might not do it next week, but you're here now. Your normal, if you're honest, is that you don't normally go to church, but today is different. Cool, we're, we're glad you're here. The third camp, and of course these groups can overlap, the third camp is trying to find some meaning in all of this mess. Like all of us, your life is a bit upside down and, and things are out of balance. Rather than trying to maintain some normalcy, you're trying to find a normalcy, trying to find something that makes sense of your experience right now. What I want to talk about this morning is the very heart of the Christian message. And what I hope to do, or rather what I hope God's Word does through me, is to rewire your understanding of normalcy. Because the Christian message is not just a, a layer on top of our everyday experience. It's not something that we can encounter and then adapt and weave into the ways we used to think and behave and act. Instead, the Christian message could be said to be revolutionary. It appends everything we are, everything we think of as normal. That is the underlying premise of the passage we're looking at this morning. That the who and what of Easter change everything. The who and what of Easter change everything. I'm going to preach this passage a little unusually. I'm going, to, I'm going to start at the beginning and end of this passage, and I'm going to work my way into the middle of the passage, and then I'm going to work my way back out again for some application. So if, if you're looking for the what now, it, it's going to be mostly baked in at the end as I work my way back out. And at the extremes of this passage, at those ends where I'm going to start and end, um, we have this assumption that the Christian message changes things. The author of this letter, who is the Apostle Paul, he addresses this from the positive at the start and then at the, as the negative of it at the end. So in verse 6 we read, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And then in verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world... And we'll continue that thought in a minute. So, so verse 6 is a positive exhortation or encouragement, and verse 20 is a negative question. But the general idea is the same. Uh, and I'll dig a little bit more into the significance of these as we go, but notice that we have two ideas with Christ. Receiving Christ and dying with Christ. And with both of these expressions, there is an expectation of a changed life. Positively, we are to live in Christ. And negatively, we're not to live in the world. The idea that the Colossian Christians that Paul is writing to are living in the world is a problem. It's, a, it's an error. 
Now, what does that mean to receive Christ Jesus the Lord? It's actually an interesting expression because the word receive usually is used to talk about receiving a message or a teaching, meaning you accept the teaching as trustworthy and reliable and you adopt its precepts. So if you were persuaded, say after hearing a conservative politician or a liberal politician, we might say you received that political ideology. You accepted it and adopted it and realigned your political thinking in light of it. But in this case, we're talking about receiving a person, Jesus, not a teaching per se. What does that mean? Let me suggest it means that Jesus becomes the controlling center of your existence. Everything becomes focused around him. Everything becomes rearranged around him. And everything becomes reinterpreted through him. Now, Paul goes on to explain what that looks like, but I want to come back to that at the end. And let's move in a layer in this passage. So moving from the ends a little bit closer to the middle. And we'll camp out a little bit longer here. Look at two places. In verse 8 and verses 16 through 19. And in both of these places we have a set of commands that seem to be concerned with what we could call false teachers. Listen to verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Who is this someone that might take us captive or pass judgment on us or disqualify us? There evidently were teachers, or a teacher perhaps, in the ancient city of Colossae, the city to which this letter was written, the city in ancient Turkey, who were promoting a religious viewpoint that was attractive to many of the Christians there. But it wasn't the true Christian message. The letter doesn't give us a lot of specifics about what exactly was being taught. It gives us just little snippets, and those little snippets are just enough to drive scholars mad, and over the centuries they've tried to recreate in so many different ways what they think these false teachers were teaching, but it's all just a bunch of guesswork. It's not particularly important exactly what they were teaching. But it does seem like the teaching was not portrayed as an abandonment of Christianity. But if instead it was being sold as an augmentation of Christianity. Probably the teachers were teaching that they had additional information, additional secrets beyond the good news that the Colossian Christians had originally received. And this new information, this new wisdom, this new philosophy could help them become more spiritual, more aware, more righteous, more enlightened. We might even say more woke if they follow these ideas. At least that was probably the sales pitch. 
And Paul is warning them in verse 8, don't be taken captive to this false teaching or philosophy, which he says is really a hollow trick. It's empty and it's worthless. Paul says that this teaching is according to human tradition, meaning it's man-made. The teaching is according to the elemental spirits of the world, which is a strange phrase that probably means that the teaching is concerned with the basic things of this world. It's an insult. Uh, which human beings over and over in history have attempted to spiritualize. Maybe it's the planets and stars, or in the ancient world, earth and air and fire and water, the elements of the universe. And Paul is saying that they're basic and they're fundamental and they're not worthy of our attention. Down in verse 16, Paul can speak of these teachers as people who are questioning what we eat and drink and what days we celebrate and, and, and how we celebrate those days. It sounds like a lot of man-made rules. And down in verse 18, Paul says the teachers are concerned with insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The asceticism, that's a, a word that means denying yourself, usually in a religious context, in order to achieve some higher spiritual plane. And it probably means that they were, or at least there's a good chance that they're doing these ascetic things, like maybe fasting or even harming their bodies in order to achieve a higher spiritual consciousness, maybe even bring about these visions that are mentioned. It would have been common, especially in the ancient world, but not entirely foreign in our world today. They're apparently very heavily focused on spiritual beings. It says angels that are not God. And whatever these beings are in this context, they are functionally worshiping these angels, these beings. And then toward the end of the passage, in the last couple of verses, there are more references to denying oneself certain things in order to promote a certain sense of spirituality that like by giving up all these things and, and denying yourself all these things, you can achieve a higher level of spirituality. Maybe that sounds like something that we just went through the last 40 days. Some have suggested this mixture of beliefs might have been indicative of a cultural religion. It's got a lot of weird forms and things that don't really fit any religion we know in the ancient world. And, and so it may have just been the cultural mix that existed in a cosmopolitan city like Colossae. And because it was part of their culture, part of their background, part of the air they breathed, the mixture was just sort of alluring to them. Well, what should we make of all of this? Well, let me suggest that one thing we can make out of this is that it's always been easy for people to get Christianity mixed up with the ideas of the world. And not just the world's ideas, but the world's ideals. And, not surprisingly, there have always been so-called teachers who are willing to encourage you and to help you do exactly that. What does that look like in America in the 21st century? Well, given that America is an eclectic, cosmopolitan place, it takes eclectic forms. There are, there are those on the political right uh, that want you to worship America. 
functionally. They don't, they don't call it that, but, but they want you to worship America, and they will tell you that Jesus loves America. There are those on the political left who want you to worship socialism. They won't call it that, but that's functionally what it is, and they'll tell you Jesus loves Marx. There are those who have bought into vague ideas of spirituality, and they'll tell you that Jesus loves just about anything that you can think of. The basic idea of the American religion is this. You can believe whatever in hell you want and bring Jesus along for the ride if you like. And I would guess that most Christians who also call themselves Christians call themselves Christians in precisely that way. Jesus doesn't really define who they are and what they value and what they think and what they do. They've already decided what they value and who they are and what they think and what they do for other reasons. Jesus is just along for the ride. In fact, maybe that's you. Perhaps more than you'd like to admit. But here's the problem. You see, at the end of verse 8, those teachings are not according to Christ. And in verse 19, those false teachers did not hold fast to the head, meaning Christ. So although the Christians in Colossae may have been seduced by these teachers and their teaching, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous gambit because as much as they may have continued to see themselves as Christians, Paul warns them that they were in danger of losing Christ altogether. So when our Christianity gets mixed up with what our culture promotes as spiritual or good or whole, we are in danger of losing Christ and ending with nothing. Which brings us to the center of this passage. How do we know if we are following the true Jesus or if we are following a deception? Well, in order to know the difference, we need to know who Jesus is and what he did. That is the who and the what of Easter. And that is the center of this passage, which is in verses 9 through 15. So turn to chapter 9. We're going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, in verse 9, it says, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily. That's the who of Easter. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the center of the Easter story, and who he is matter. We'll unpack this statement one bit at a time. Deity. Deity is godness. It's the stuff of God. Whatever God is, that is deity. In the Christian faith, as with the Jewish faith, there is one and only one deity. There is only one God. And the fullness of that deity, which means all of that deity, not part of the deity, not some of that deity, not a resemblance of that deity, not a quality of that deity, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. In fact, to be emphatic, Paul says, all the fullness, the whole of the fullness dwells in Jesus. Christians believe and have always believed that Jesus is fully God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. 
Now, if you listen to some of America's religions, that's not true. The Mormons tell you Jesus is a God among many. The Jehovah's Witnesses actually changed the Bible in this passage to say that Jesus has the divine quality, whatever that means. But the word quality is not in the ancient Greek. They added that because this verse contradicts the heart of what they believe. So they changed the Bible. Some Americans, the ones into various forms of so-called spirituality, want to say that we're all divine and Jesus was a manifestation of the divine. But Jesus himself won't allow for that. The Bible is clear that Jesus is unique and there is none like him. He is the only representative of the divine on earth. No, Jesus is fully God and he is the only one. Dwells. It says he dwells. The passage says the deity dwells in Jesus. And that word means to take up a home. God took up residence in the person of Jesus. Bodily. Jesus was not merely a spirit being. He was not a mystic entity. He had a human body as much as you or I have a human body. Uh, taking these two ideas together, dwells and bodily, this verse comes very close to John chapter 1 verse 14 where John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea is the same. God who existed before all creation made a dwelling in the flesh and bones that was named Jesus by his real flesh and bones human mother. In this way, Jesus is not just fully God, although he is fully God, but he's also fully human. He's not kind of human. He doesn't appear to be human. He doesn't have a human representation. He experiences everything that is to be God, and he experiences and experienced everything that it meant to be human. What does the Bible say God is like? Jesus is that. What makes a human a human? Jesus is that too. That is the who of Easter. Easter is about Jesus, but not the Jesus of our world's imaginations. Easter is about the Jesus who is fully God and dwelt among us for some very special purposes, which we're going to get to now. Paul says next, and you have been filled in him. And that's an interesting statement and, and a deliberate play on words. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, and Christians have been filled in Jesus. Paul is writing specifically to Christians here, so keep that in mind. In what way are they filled? Well, I suspect that it's in every way that matters. The false teachers were likely promising a greater, fuller experience beyond what these Colossians had in Christ. But it was a lie. Because those who follow Christ truly are already filled. We have every good thing that God intends us to have. All the knowledge God intends us to have, all the grace we are unworthy of, everything. What do you look for? For satisfaction. For joy. For fulfillment. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Fulfillment. If you're in Christ, you are already filled in Jesus. 
He is the source of all satisfaction and all joy and all fulfillment. For Christians, there's no need to move past Jesus. There's only a need to go deeper into Jesus. How? Jesus gives us this utter fulfillment and joy. And how he does it is the what of Easter. The next verses explain this with a, a bunch of in Jesus and with Jesus statements. First, Paul writes, in him, in Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that's a strange statement. We don't normally talk about circumcision as part of our daily conversations, but it would have been a little more common and a little bit more important point of conversation for a Jewish Christian, former rabbi like Paul. Circumcision in the ancient world set the Jews apart from their Greek and Roman neighbors. It was a sign given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the first of the Jewish people, to establish their unique relationship with God. In fact, for many Gentiles, that's non-Jews, Greeks and Romans, who were interested in the Jewish faith, sometimes for them the last hurdle in converting was the choice to be circumcised. I'm sure there were very practical reasons for uh, an adult male to hold off on wanting to be circumcised, but at the same time, it also meant a complete break from the world that they knew before and a complete alignment with this new people. It was a big step. And so in that way, circumcision came to be seen as a marker of who belonged to God. So by saying these Christians were circumcised, Paul is saying they were metaphorically set apart for God. It wasn't a physical circumcision, but a spiritual one, because it was done without hands. It's what the Old Testament and even Moses called the circumcision of the heart. It removed the body of flesh, not the foreskin, but meaning all of our old sinful desires and habits. The Bible is clear that our bodies, so to speak, are corrupted by wicked desires and deeds, and that these things destroy us and ultimately condemn us. But those who are in Christ have this sinful bent to our natures utterly removed. And that can be called the circumcision of Christ. It's our conversion. Conversion is the change from one way of life to another. And Christians are people who are converted. All Christians are converts. Because we recognize that we are born with sin and we're born set against God and we live lives that are set against God. And we have to turn away from that old life and turn toward Christ. That's the conversion that the Bible speaks of. And I'll say more about that in a second. But Paul continues by explaining that this conversion for a Christian happens when we have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. For Christians, baptism is the initiation rite. 
It's the first step of faith. It's closely connected with conversion, with the change from rebelliousness to faithfulness. It would be unheard of for someone in the first century to be called a Christian who was not baptized. And if that person was baptized, it was because he or she had converted by rejecting the way of the world and, going back to verse 6, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. If you've not experienced this conversion, I need you to know that it's necessary if you have any hope of escaping judgment. After all, in verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, this was the recipients, the Colossians' condition before their conversion. They were dead in their trespasses, which is one of the ways the Bible talks about sin. When you trespass, you, you cross a boundary. So, your neighbor puts up a sign that says, no trespassing, that means you, you can't step onto their lawn or their property. There is a boundary there that you are not allowed to cross. And so, Scripture picks up that sort of metaphor that there is a, a boundary that God has set up for us that we don't have the right to cross. And yet we have crossed it. We have, we have trespassed on God's good commands. And these trespasses bring about a spiritual death. In this life, that means no matter what we think about ourselves, we are spiritually dead to God. We do not know God, and we're hopeless, and we're lost. And in the next life, that means that we will be separated from the joy and good pleasure of God and suffer in hell. That was my status for years and years. And that was the status of these Christians in Colossae that Paul was writing to. And that's bad news. But for the Christians at Colossae, God made them alive together with Christ, having forgiven them all their trespasses. And that's eminently good news. How did God do this? How did God make them alive with Christ? Because how He made them alive is the secret of how I and you can be made alive. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, between you and God is a record of debt. It's the book of your life in which are many, many pages which I'm sure you'd like to forget. But they're not forgotten. God has seen everything. He remembers everything. And there's a record of debt in our failure to uphold God's standards. And so that record is decidedly against us. And we stand condemned under the weight of that book. 
But God took that record of debt and He picked it up and He nailed it to the cross, Jesus' cross. And that is, in fact, the heart of Easter. You see, on Friday, probably April 3rd in the year 33, Jesus died on the cross. And in so doing, the perfect one who was both fully God and fully man bore the punishment that I deserve to pay, that sinners deserve to pay. He paid the debt. I couldn't pay the debt myself. Only one who was perfectly man could represent my case before God, and only one who was perfectly God could represent my case before God. Only Jesus could do this. But then on Sunday, probably the 5th of April in the year 33, Jesus rose from the dead. The cross could not hold him. The weight of my sin could not keep him in the grave because he won. And in doing so, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. All the spiritual forces of the universe have been laid bare and stripped of their power, no longer holding mastery over any who are also in Christ. This is the what of Easter. Jesus died for sins so that sinners can die to sin. Jesus rose to life so that sinners can have new life too. How do you get in on that? Well, in the first place, it's faith. As Paul writes in verse 12, faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Faith in this case is the reliance on the fact that God rose Jesus from the dead to deal with sin once and for all. But it's also repentance. Repentance is that turning, that conversion from one way of life to another. And that brings us back to the beginning of this message. And I said I was going to work my way back out to the ends. I said at the beginning that the, at the extremes of this passage, we have this assumption that the Christian message changes things. The danger that Paul was concerned about for the Colossians is that although they were apparently Christians, they apparently had a sort of faith. They were starting to live lives that didn't look like converted lives like repentant lives. So look at the end of this passage. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. The Colossians have fallen into trying to make themselves better, holy, holier, make themselves more spiritual by following all sorts of man-made rules. Let me, let me talk about the difference between man-made religion and, and Christian religion. Man-made religion is a bit like the 12-step programs. And I don't mean to knock the 12-step programs, but they all have a basic premise. If you're in Carbohydrates Anonymous, for example, you must avoid all carbohydrates. Don't touch that cupcake. Don't eat that bagel. But the problem isn't the carbohydrates, is it? 
the carbohydrates never did anything to you. The carbohydrates are just a, they're just molecules. They're, they're, they're not evil in, them of, in and of themselves. It's the overindulgence in unhealthy carbohydrates. Christianity says, instead, love Jesus more than you love carbohydrates. Love Jesus more than you love narcotics. Love Jesus more than you love alcohol. Love Jesus more than you love sex. If Jesus is the controlling principle of your life, he'll lead you to moderation. The larger point is that the Colossians were in danger of falling into spiritual patterns that were no better than anything the world had ever offered them before they'd even heard of Christ. They were in danger of living, as Paul puts it, in the world, meaning they were following the world's ideas, agreeing with the world's thinking, and doing the world's deeds. But they had a higher calling, a calling to a new life. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. To repent means that instead of being in the world, we are in Christ. Instead of following the world's ideas and agreeing with the world's thinking and doing the world's deeds, we are not agreeing with Christ and doing the things of Christ. Now we are following the ideas of Jesus and agreeing with Jesus' thinking and doing Jesus' deeds. Jesus becomes the interpretive center of our world. Doug Moo puts it this way, Let Christ and no other, for He is Lord, establish your values, guide your thinking, direct your conduct. Using architectural terminology, Paul says, we are rooted up, are rooted and built up in Jesus. That is, the, the, the building of our life is anchored down firmly in the bedrock of Jesus. And our construction is then built upon that firm foundation. Using another building term, he says that we ought to be established in the faith that has been taught to us. Like Jude writes in the book of Jude, a little short book at the end of the New Testament, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We can never go beyond the central truth of the Christian message. Instead, we are established in it unwaveringly. And in so doing, we abound in thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Because the Christian knows that he or she is utterly undeserving of any good thing from God, let alone the grace that forgave our sins and nailed our record of debt onto the cross, on Jesus' cross. And so every good thing ought to be a source of an outpouring of thanksgiving to God. And so we might ask, is this how you might describe your life? If it is, if, if you can describe your life as no longer in the world, but in Christ, if, if Jesus is the interpretive center of your universe, if it is Jesus who guides your thinking and directs your conduct, if it's Jesus' ideals 
that guide your ideals. And if your life overabounds in thanksgiving because of it, then wonderful. It suggests that you are a Christian. And you need to heed the warnings in this passage to not then succumb to the temptations of this world and its teachers that will subvert your faith. But if this doesn't describe you, then it could be one of two things going on. Perhaps you are a Christian, but you've been lured in by the deceitfulness of this world. You've gone astray like some of the Colossians were tempted to do. You, you lost sight of Easter. You forgot the death and resurrection of Jesus. You forgot the forgiveness of sins and a new life in him. And you are in danger of throwing everything away. If that's you, well, this is your wake-up call. Come home. Come home before it is too late. The forgiveness that Jesus offered you is still yours, and you can still reclaim this life. You can stop living in the world and begin living as you ought in Christ. On the other hand, and that's, that's a very serious case because we can always be very deluded. We might think ourselves a Christian and just a fallen one or a backslidden one, and sometimes we don't appraise how bad our own situation is. So that, that's a bad case, but it's not a hopeless case. But on the other hand, this might not describe you because you're really not a Christian. Maybe you never had any illusions that you were a Christian, or perhaps you've thought yourself a Christian for a long time, but the reality is you've never been converted. You've never received the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of heart. And so you are and remain dead in your trespasses. If this is you, your situation is most grave indeed. It's dire because you are a single breath away from eternal rejection of God and by God. But there's hope and good news for you too, because if you turn to Christ in faith and turn your back on sin, you too can experience the cancellation of your debt and the forgiveness of your sins and new life. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's, there's no magic formula to this. You simply say, God, I believe what you did in Jesus on his cross, and I turn my back on my old sinful way of life and receive Jesus as my new master, as the controlling, interpretive center of my life. And, and I want to follow Jesus' ideas. I want to agree with Jesus' thinking, and I want to do the works that Jesus would have me do. And if that's where you're at, or if that's where you think you might be, We'd love to talk with you and, and encourage you and to answer any questions you might have. Please, please drop us a note by email or fill out a connection card and even post in the comments. But, but don't delay. Today is Easter. Jesus is alive. He is risen. And you can be too.